Hi, I'm Liam. And I'm joined here by Owen. So happy to be here. And we're going to be talking about the history of the labor movement in America. This will be a four-part series. The first part will be talking about early labor movements. The second part will be talking about the industrial rise and their decline. And then the fourth episode will be talking about their modern resurgence, if you will. And then the fourth episode will be a discussion with Matt Cressman, my man, one of the hosts of the Chapo Trap House podcast. And I just wanted to give a big shout out to uh, Chris Wade. He is the producer of Chapo Trap House. Um, and I sent him a really strange email a while ago asking him for help. A few months later, Chris got back to me and was like, yeah, I'd, I'd be totally down for doing this. I was really shocked. I like read that email over and I was like, what? I can't believe this. So that's that's the genesis of sort of this project. My idea is that I think podcasts are really useful for information spreading, sort of in the way that unions and revolutionary organizations would pass out pamphlets and zines in the past. I think podcasts are a really interesting way of information spreading and awareness. Without further ado, let's get into the history of unions in America. Let's do it, baby. Excited. So Owen, I've asked him to basically be as uninformed as possible about this topic. I am more proudly unprepared for this project than <laughs> I've been for maybe anything else in my life. Although you're typically proudly unprepared for things. Well, not proudly. That's I'd, I'd say that that's <laughs> the distinction here. <laughs> now I wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, right. So... If we want to start talking about unions, most people would probably start in the 19th century. Industrialization, industrial growth, factories, stuff like that. Sure. When I think of unions, you know. Right. I think, that, I think that's when I first learned about them in school. Carnegie, Vanderbilt. Exactly. Those guys early, what, 1900s? Uh, 1800s, really. Uh, re remember what I said about being unprepared? That's that's a good point to start, really, if you want to talk about unions in their you know in a very strong form. But if you want to talk about labor, because the idea of a union it's about organizing workers. They have this sort of inherent power that there are more of them than there are of the boss. They are sort of the gears in the operation of places of employment. And so when a worker stands by themselves, they're much less powerful than when they gather together collectively. And that's sort of the, the fundamental thesis of a union. And so, yes, unions became very powerful and very much in the public eye in the 19th century. But if you look back, even as early as the 1600s, you see laborers gathering together to organize. In 1636, you had some fishermen in Maine. They wanted to be paid more. And this was like, this was very, very early America. I mean, was literally pre-America. So were there like formal places of employment or were these without a name, but just a bunch of people who all worked together and fished and one guy kind of controlled everybody or something like that? That's more what it was like. It was it was very much like, again, there were no formal unions or formal like enterprises or anything. It was just a bunch of people working somewhere in, a, in an area. A lot of the early strikes are, are very trade focused. So like in mm. 1677, car men... Car like centaurs, half men, half cars. <laughs> which half is which? <laughs> I think the bottom half car, right? So you can get around. So you can get around. So like in 1778, we're jumping a little bit ahead there. Some printers in New York City, not the electronic kind. <laughs> uh, they, they wanted an increase yeah, what, in What wages. kind? Laser jet printers? <laughs> inkjet, actually. Inkjet. <laughs> Spraying ink, ink onto the page. Right. So those some printers, they were just, they worked there and they were like, hey, we're not getting paid enough. It costs too much to live. Mm -hmm. Can we have more money? And they organized. Um, and this is this is post-America at this point. At this point, at that point, I believe so. Yes, I've I've been paying um, attention. I've been listening to those dates. <laughs> 
1791, some carpenters wanted a 10-hour work week, which if you think that was a drop <laughs> from mm. what they were currently working. So it's just... 10-hour work, and a work week was still Monday through Friday at this point? 10-hour work day. I, w- I wrote week. Work day. Work day. So that, that, that would be very different. Yes. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I wrote week. So in the early stages, you see a lot of people working in one place saying, hey, this stuff sucks. I want to get paid more or I want to work less because it's grueling. Sure. Can you do that? In a lot of places, it didn't work. In a lot of places, it didn't. Ten, was... hour, ten hour work week, baby. <laughs> I want a ten hour work week. Yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice? So there's a really important court case sort of started set as one of the court cases that set the bar for a lot of treatment of unions. Supreme Court case? Um, it wasn't. It, it never made it to, never made it to the Supreme, Supreme Court. court. Um, so it was not Batman v. Superman <laughs> no, or anything no. like that. Uh, well, it was somebody v. somebody else because right. that's how you describe cases. But... Batman v. Superman. Right, of course. <laughs> Famed um, Supreme Court case. In 1794, the Federal Society of J- Journeyman Cordwainers was founded in Philadelphia. I'm Love sorry. I'm sorry. I'm go- I'm really going to need a replay <laughs> on that word. Um, Cordwainers? Yes, they made shoes. Cordwainers made shoes? Yes. I I've always heard the word cobbler. Uh, that's another one. that's another phrase. Um Okay, but you you picked the long one. That's what well that's what it was called. Mm. Um the 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 the, the Cordwainers society or whatever. Okay. Um they made it from so I Cordwainers make it from leather. Whereas cobblers um, make it from corn on the cob. <laughs> cordwainers made shoes from leather. Cobblers repaired shoes. Oh, okay. So All right. I don't know how factual that is, but I know that cordwainers made shoes. Well, I've, I've learned that something already. So this Federal Society of German... German cordwainers. <laughs> <laughs> the Federal Society of Journeyman Cordwainers was founded in 1794. And then they were like striking. They were getting together saying, hey, can we get some rises in wages, and they, they made some success. They were striking like that for about like 10 years. And then in 1806, it was the Commonwealth of Philadelphia v. Polis, who I believe was one of the sort of higher-ups in the society. Um, it was a court at the Mayor's Court of Philadelphia. And we don't really have many notes of what happened because it was 1806, in what, and one guy was like writing it down. Um, <laughs> the monks. <laughs> it was the, the monks of... The Commonwealth of Philadelphia. <laughs> the Philadelphia monks were, were, were copying everything down by hand. Right. And so the court ruled, it was about strikes from the Federal Society of Journeyman Cordwainers. And the court ruled in favor of Philadelphia that, quote, workers were transitory, irresponsible, and dangerous. And that the shoemakers, and unquote, and that the shoemakers of Philadelphia had conspired together to raise their wages. And so that this is this is while they were on strike at this point. This 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 was the the grand conspiracy, uh, another name for a strike. I can only assume. Right. So the idea is that they were striking for raising in wages. They struck gold, <laughs> and then I guess you know the, the 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 bosses didn't like that, so they tried to prosecute them, and the court was like, "Yeah, you conspired to do that." So some labor leaders were fined, and striking itself was declared an illegal conspiracy. For basically the first half of the 1800s, this was what court cases with labor unions or uh, labor organizations looked like. And so uh, did other court cases come up? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't write down any of the names, but there were uh, 23 
known cases like this mm. where workers collectively bargaining for higher wages or shorter hours were, were doing so illegally. They couldn't do that. This case with, with the cord winners was the precedent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and they were basically most of the punishment. You know, I was imagining like some some gruel gruelish stuff here. Some gruel, <laughs> but they were just like they were fined, which sucks when you have already low wages. And they were fined. right. What, what, what you're striking for more money? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> they and, said, "Oh, I, I have the perfect solution." And they were fined. Like uh, the the those labor leaders in Commonwealth v. Polis were fined a week's wages. So it, it wasn't like cool that they were fined right but it wasn't like they were like killed or executed or anything it was just right they were they had to struggle more economically and so what a mercy <laughs> right and so as uh, as capitalism is wont to do there was a economic collapse in 1837 the reasons for it are, are complex but essentially the economy collapsed due to some, some invisible hand some <laughs> yes <laughs> the invisible hand of the market something like that um Put up the invisible finger to <laughs> some to the the people right. in 1837. Yes. Yeah, 1837. I don't think I can name too much of what was going on. I'm trying to. Andrew Jackson was president. Oh, Andrew Jackson. I think so. That's what it said. My, that right. My man. Okay. So, uh, Trail of Tears. Yes, he was. He was. Uh, I think he was. Yes. Um. So prices fell. Mm -hmm. Um. Obviously, because economic depression. Economic depression. Um. Industries felt economic hardship and like planters went bankrupt and stuff. So it was it was not a good time. To planters, be planters, farmers, farmers. Okay, yes. they plant things on them. I for some reason I was picturing like those uh, things that you have on your windowsill. Yes, for for, for some reason, I, yeah, I was picturing like an old man planting a couple of like bean sprouts for his windowsill. And he went bankrupt. He went bankrupt. He couldn't do that anymore. They, they went around to every windsill, windmill. Nope, you know that windowsill, windowsill. Every windsill in the country. And so it's interesting because the Boston Journeymakers Bootmakers, Journeyman Bootmakers Society. <laughs> Bootlickers Society. <laughs> so like, it's, it's interesting to see all these, all these early labor organizations are like, there was a system in early American economy where you had artisans and masters and journeymen who studied under them. Okay. And so the journeymen weren't like factory workers. They were, they were skilled laborers. And they were the ones often doing the striking. So sort of this, like, I don't want to say middle class because that means nothing. But like, Right. Yeah, because there's no middle class at this point. Right. But like this, like, sort of, they, they weren't like, again, they weren't factory workers or anything. They were skilled laborers who had a talent in this particular boot making or shoe making, cord, cord waning. <laughs> <laughs> and they were the ones making the strike, which I just, I didn't picture that. And so they were striking during this economic depression. Yeah. And... I just thought this story was sort of interesting, interestingly representative of like a small, tight-knit community of workers. Because one guy was doing work on the side on boots without getting paid. He was like doing work for like some person he knew. He was a he was a bootmaker. Yes, by he was trade. A bootmaker by trade. And, and was, on the side, he was making another boot. Making another boot. Yes. Okay, I can only imagine the scandal. Essentially, this was a breach of rules to the society because, like, they had these rules where, understandably, if you do work, you have to be paid, right? Like, that's – if you're part of the society, you have to ensure that all work you do is paid. If you don't follow these rules all the time, then there can be situations where the boss doesn't pay you. If the rules are like, well, it's kind of wishy-washy, you know, then they don't have any protections in place. Right. And then, then your choice is either work and don't get paid or don't work at all. Exactly. The society fined him because that was a breach of rules. You can't do work without getting paid. And so he's like, they whatever. They find him? <laughs> he was lost and they find they him. They find him, yes. They, they, they find now. 
<laughs> and <he can't. laughs> that's that's an obscure one. Wow. Um, a couple of a couple of hoops to jump through for that one. Yes. And so he kept breaking rules, right? He, you know, he kept doing work on the side and he kept being fine. He was a boot addict. <laughs> yes. he, he could not stop making those boots. He boot, couldn't say no. You could describe him as a boot edge edge. If you could. And so he kept breaking rules and they kept finding him. Yeah. And so he goes to an attorney and he's like, look, I want to prosecute the society because they want to punish employers and non-union laborers. And so he goes to that attorney and the attorney starts the legal process. And eventually this leads to a Massachusetts Supreme Court case called uh, Commonwealth v. Hunt. Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Hunt. I believe Hunt is that guy. And so this case sort of reversed the, the previous decision of Commonwealth of Philadelphia v. Polis, where there it was ruled that unions were illegal, conspiring. And here it was a landmark case deciding that strikes, walkouts, all that stuff on behalf of unions were legal as long as they used like legal means and were for a legal purpose. Now there are some, obviously there are some cop-outs in there for yeah, like, sure. well, that's not a legal purpose. Or a legal mean. Exactly. I can only assume if that means if like, you know, a thousand people are striking and someone throws a brick through a window and mm -hmm. they're like, oh. Right, exactly. Um, everyone's laid off. Yeah. And what's funny is that the judge, he wasn't in favor of labor. He was like a super, I don't want to say conservative because again, it's 1837, but like. Um, <laughs> right. He wasn't in favor of labor. He thought that. A bourgeois. <laughs> A judge. <laughs> yes. Um, he had ruled that if an accident on the part of one employee injured another, the employer was not liable. Like, that was something he had just ruled. So he was definitely not in favor of, of labor. Wait, sorry. He, he ruled... He ruled that if an accident... On a different case, he ruled yeah. that if an accident on the part of one employee injured another, the employer was not liable. So if I, like, drop a big ton of bricks on you right. um, while we're working in the factory, yeah. I, I am liable... Our boss is not. Um, well, you, you dropped the bricks on <laughs> that's me. That's true. I did drop the well, bricks. Um, why are you doing that? <laughs> who gave me the forklift, though? Um, and so, a, a circa 1837 forklift. Right. Um, Just two, two other guys, people. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> and so nobody really knows what, like, why he ruled like this. But some, <laughs> He ruled, dude. <laughs> yeah, he did rule. Some people think that the Whigs, because he was a Whig, um, he wore a wig. Um, <laughs> the Whigs were afraid laborers would vote Democrats into power. So uh, they wanted to be like, hey, laborer, we kind of like you. Um, I think it's time for the Whig party to make, to it make its return. Back. Well, if the Democratic Party falls apart, right. um, then somebody uh, can resurrect the Whig party as the second party. Obviously, those are those two, the Whig Party and the Republican Party, will probably have a lot in common. They've rebranded. Exactly. So, they, they have new management. <laughs> they have new wigs. <laughs> um, Fresh powder. <laughs> the case Commonwealth v. Hunt was used a lot in the following years to side with labor. But, obviously, that legal purpose part was sometimes used to punish strikes, saying, well, uh, illegal purpose. You didn't, um, sort of the same idea as, like, you need a protest permit. Yep. Um, so we can punish anyone who doesn't go through our official channels. Yes. Um, Papers, please. Exactly. Same deal. So for up until 1837, really, big labor strikes were literally illegal. So you, you didn't see a lot of them. Furthermore, early unions were localized and specialized in specific types of bootmakers, cord waners. <laughs> I, every time. Can't get over that word. I, I can't get enough. 
they were mostly found in that like journeyman skilled section rather than like factory workers or industrial workers. And of course, factory workers is a bit, you know, it's 1837. What kind of factories do you think they had at this point? <laughs> Cord waning factories? <laughs> Uh, in Marxist terms, though this was really before Marx, um, sure was. They would sort of be the petite bourgeoisie, <laughs> um, where they they owned Le some of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> they owned some of the productive powers of their labor, like tools and and some of the the places of work. But they were employed by the labor. Uh, they they employ they employed labor of others to help them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting to see how that they unionized that cl not class, but that group of people unionizing is a bit strange because they had more advantage. Yeah. Like they, they were, they were not my type. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were not the type of people who I would think would unionize like skilled workers in control of a lot of aspects of their work. Again, doesn't surprise me because they're still selling their labor power, but it's interesting. The industrial revolution happens. Industry yes. grows. Total horsepower employed by manufacturing in the U.S. was augmented by 85%. There were 13, approximately 13,000 patents issued in the 1870s, as opposed to about 21,000 issued in the 1880s. Stuff is happening. Right. Patents are being issued. People are making stuff. <laughs> Interestingly, industrial growth was used to displace labor and save wages rather than increasing and maintaining wages and just decreasing labor hours. So it's sort of... Well, the... I can only imagine it. Yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds me of, of the cotton gin, right? Right, exactly. The, the cotton gin made by... What's his name? Some guy. The Samuel whatever? Yeah. William? I don't know. Something like that. Uh, he was... Yeah, he was a he was a union in the sense of union confederate. Right. Union. He was a northern guy, and he said, well, if I make this invention, it'll make it so that the slaves don't have to seed as much cotton. That's right. So it'll improve their lives. But what had ended up happening was that they could process the cotton so much faster that they needed more slaves to harvest the cotton exactly, yeah. even faster to keep up with it. It's a similar, a very similar idea. You know, the employer uses the technological advantage to say, well, you guys can get lost. <laughs> I'm just going to use this machine. And it's interesting to parallel that to now with automation and mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, well, we can replace all these people with machines. I mean, yes, you could do that. But what if... I've already replaced all my friends with machines. Exactly. Owen is a highly skilled uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> and I'm only telling you that. I, would, I wouldn't say highly skilled. <laughs> moderately skilled at best. It, even now, like, you know, instead of replacing people with machines, you could reduce their work. If, you, if the promise of technology is true, that it makes the same amount of money in the same amount of time, or more, rather more money in the same amount of time or the same amount of money in less time. You can use that to give people less working hours, but make the same amount of profit. And so it makes people's lives better and maintains profit. It's interesting how even then you can see technology being used. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, how it worked out then. Right. And then maybe we can have a little bit of a, a, a predictor for the future. Well, workers struck, basically. People were striking for better working conditions, better um, working hours. I mean, lots of unions, like big unions that you've heard of, like the Knights of Labor and the uh, AFL, stuff like that were, were founded during this period of time. I think, I think this is mostly when the Knights of Labor were. So more and more cases uh, were starting to be brought up against striking workers. So during this period, wages and conditions of working, working people were on a downward trend because there was this technology people were being laid off people were being less and less utilized and so the annual income was dropping 
it dropped by about $100 per capita from 1870 to 1880. $100, keep in mind, a lot more back then. Sure. Do you have any kind of a reference for me on that one? What cost? $100 in 1880 would cost like 2500 2600 in 2019. Okay. So that's a few thousand dollars. That's a few thousand Imagine dollars. Imagine if you're... If, if that's a few thousand wages Big Macs. Were, were, that is a, uh, quite a few Big Macs. <laughs> So wages dropped about $100 per capita from 1870 to 1880. So that's that's like $2,600, which sucks <laughs> right. if you're working and you depend on that. So wages are dropping, conditions are dropping. Immigration from Europe is not dropping. Um, it's increasing, <laughs> in fact. Right. Immigrants were coming into country. Because these all these strikes were going on, immigrants were sent in as strike breakers because they wanted work. They didn't know that there was a strike going on. They didn't. I mean, yes, Europe had... I'm not going to say anything about Europe because I did no research on that. They, on. Did, they just ma- came ma- in. Make some unfounded claims. <laughs> Europe, some European um, laborers came in. They went to labor bureaus and the people are like, yeah, there's a job here. Right. And they're like, cool. And it doesn't pay anything, but. Well, it, it, it pays a little bit and you're a strike breaker. Right. But I'm not going to tell you that. No. <laughs> and even if I did, you know, who knows if you'll speak the language because you've just arrived in this country with the promise of having a better life. So they're just like, okay, cool. I want work. Lots of them never even knew that like strikes were happening. They're just like, cool. I want a job. So sure. we can blame them, right? right? And the strikers would see this. And there were two major things that happened. Is one, the the positive thing was that sometimes strikers would try to break through to the immigrants and say, hey, we're fighting for working conditions. If you fight with us, this will improve your life too. But a lot of the times. They just couldn't get that message to them. Um, sure. Probably same language barrier Language issues. barrier, all that kind of stuff. And then obviously the other side is laborers seeing this and instantly reverting to racism and xenophobia and saying like, well, it's immigrants taking our jobs. They're taking our money from us. They're breaking our strikes. Like, I hate them. And so that's a lot of the reason for, obviously there's just racism and xenophobia regardless, but... It's an interesting pattern throughout labor history of taking groups that would otherwise have solidarity. Like if I'm an immigrant and I'm coming into the country, having better working conditions is cool and good and something I want. Yes. But the employers were like, oh, well, if I use these people to break the strike, then they won't have like, they won't organize together. There will be this racism and stuff. And so it was interesting. And so all these these factors, the declining in living conditions, the decline in working conditions and wages, and then the increase in integration leads to big industrial unions in the modern sense. So let's talk about the Knights of Labor. Let's do it. Totally a frat. The, frat, <laughs> the Knights of Labor? The frats of labor, yeah. basically. Um, Knights of the round labor. Basically, it was the guy who started it. I don't know his name here, but he was... He envisioned it as I, like, I, I can imagine. He envisioned it. He had a beard. He had a cool beard. Philip Waldsworth. <laughs> and he envisioned it like a bunch of bros getting together and doing unionism in like secret. Like secret <laughs> underground yeah. bro unionism. So it's like the, um, uh-oh, I'm not going to be able to come up with the name of that movie. The poetry one. The Dead Poet Society. Oh, yes. That. <laughs> the Dead Parrot Society. The Dead Parent Society. <laughs> um, it was just a frat. That's yep. how this guy envisioned it. It was very religious. It was very there was there was scripture in the texts, uh, in the in the founding texts, in the sacred founding texts, the sacred Jedi texts. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and so, like, it was very secret. 
they were they started at as the no quote noble order of the knights of labor and did they all wear hats with big feathers on them and <laughs> i don't know that would be fun metal knights of the round labor <laughs> i already made that joke buddy <laughs> you did i didn't yeah. hear that <laughs> so found about this guy right and then the catholic church uh, there is some tension between them because they have like scripture in it and i'm pretty sure it's protestant and so like there's some there's some tensions basically they want to be less secretive less religious mm. some of the other guys other than the founder and the founder's like whatever i'm out have fun <laughs> he's had enough exactly he's had his fun and then here's a good name terence v powderly wow terence v powdery wig Powder, I I know. I was, he's a, he's a natural ally of the Whig Party. Exactly. And you know what he was the mayor of? Please tell me. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton. This was Michael Scott. <laughs> Michael Scott came into the labor union <laughs> um, with his powdered wig. Right. And he led the Knights of Labor for a while. It's interesting because you know a lot of unions of this time were very xenophobic and racist. But this one was not. In a, in a, in, <laughs> this one was cool. In some senses. <laughs> there are positives and negatives. I mean, the feathered hats. They're, they're, <laughs> you got a guy named Powdery on your side. You got a guy named Powdery, exactly. There were Cuban assemblies, French-Canadian assemblies, Italian, Jewish. There were lots of cultures allowed in this union. Cubist assemblies. Cuban cigar assemblies. <laughs> and so that's really interesting. Unfortunately, Asians didn't make the cut, apparently. Seems to be a little bit of a trend doesn't it yes not I, only... I, I can only think about the the railroad from california to you know what i'm talking about i know I you know not, i have no idea what from uh from what was it kansas kansas to california sure all the uh all the chinese immigrants oh, that they made yes, work yes. for like uh yeah no money right and they'd kill them mm -hmm. not only did the people in the united labor not want them in the union but they didn't want them in the country they supported the chinese exclusion act um, all sorts of fun racist stuff like that. Uh, members of the union started just straight up like attacking Chinese immigrants. Physically? Yes. Okay. On Twitter. Um, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and some leaders were supportive of that. They were like, this is cool. This rules. Hmm. They allowed women in reluctantly. It kind of takes, uh, takes the frat status down a peg. <laughs> it's true. And they let African Americans in eventually. In certain places. So it was very localized. It was very decentralized. They didn't have any official policies for behavior. So there were people who opposed African-American membership and were like locally discriminatory. It was very varied because they allowed different assemblies to have like different bylaws. Some of them would prevented certain um, racial and, and ethnic groups from joining and some were didn't. And leadership didn't really want to take action because they were like, oh, if you wait long enough. People won't be discriminatory. That was their solution. Wait it out. They were pretty good at organizing, despite the fact of their slight racism and xenophobia. But the Grand Master Workman, Powderly. Uh-oh. I had forgotten that that was his title. That his title, Wait, that was his real title? His real title. I thought you just made that up. No, Grand Master Workman. And so he didn't want to increase wages or reduce hours. This is Powderly. This is Grand Master Workman. Um, okay. Powderly. Yes. Terrence Powderly. Supreme Court case in himself, Terence V. Powderman. And he said we should establish co-ops. That was his thing, is have co-ops. Which, cool. That's cool. You, you'll have to forgive my ignorance. What's a co-op? What is a co-op? A cooperative is where uh, the company is owned and self-managed by workers. So you don't have higher-ups, you don't have executives, it's just them working together to run the business. 
uh, sort of the Marxist dream, if you will. So he wanted co-ops. But as you can think about the 19th century, that wasn't easy because there were all the monopolies. <laughs> they, were right. all, they could all do whatever they wanted. And so they didn't really gain much ground and the Knights didn't really have funding. They were good at organizing, but what they organized for didn't really amount to much. They were good at being very ineffective. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Powderly was like a lefty. He wanted the abolition of the wage system and didn't think strikes were a permanent solution. He didn't want a labor party. He wanted to forbid assemblies from taking any political action in the name of the Knights of Labor. He, he was very sort of like anti-electoralism. I don't want to snub them, but I think we're going to need to briefly talk about the uh -oh. AFL. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, snub them and... Not, not talking not, about them enough. Not talking about okay. Right. I, um, I thought I thought you were about to diss them. No, uh, I well, thought there was going to be some tea. Well, there is there is a diss because they were probably m one of the more racist. Well, that is too bad. And xenophobic, and uh, some guy Melvin Dukov Dukovsky termed them the conservative alternative to working class radicalism. Hmm. Just sort of to sum it up, they were more about craft unions, which were like skilled workers, like we talked about earlier. They rejected and looked down upon unskilled workers, like railroad people, steel workers. And so the AFL sort of was this part of the Knights of Labor, and they came off of them. They, they broke off of them and founded the AFL. The AFL didn't want anything to do with industrial unionism. They were all about craft unions. Arts and craft unions. Yes. They're making little popsicle stick things that said, uh, we hate African Americans. They never had any, like, specific policies that were like, no African-Americans, no women, no immigrants, uh, mm -hmm. as some other places did. Uh, but there was, like, local discrimination, and they were, like, relegated to specific branches. It was, it was sort of that idea of later, like, later during the Civil Rights Movement, after, I believe, the Civil Rights Act had been passed, there were no, like, specific laws because it was illegal at that point. But there was still local discrimination uh, and structural discrimination. Same thing here with the FL. They wanted Congress to reauthorize the Chinese Exclusion Act after it had been undone. They opposed women's employment completely in a lot of cases. They were a union, yes. They organized, in some cases, for um, better conditions for workers. But it was, again, the conservative alternative to working class radicalism. It was a very bureaucratic. It was a very um, undemocratic institution. It was a very um, one-sided institution. And now we get to my boys. My absolute boys. Wrote not, a whole paper on these guys. Not W-E-B. No, 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 no. Okay. The IWW. Okay. The International Workers of the World. Okay. Never um, heard of it. Well, pretty cool. Okay. Found I, I, I'm excited for them to become my boys as well. Founded by revolutionaries. <laughs> Good first step. Cool. <laughs> founded on a general consensus that industrial unionism was better than craft unionism for struggling against employers, the AFL could not be converted into a revolutionary organization, and that there was no organization at the time that could mobilize the whole of the working class. They were all about mobilizing the working class against capitalism, basically. Founded by, you've heard this name before, Eugene V. Debs. Yes, that name I have heard before. He was one of the founders of the IWW. There, are other, there were other people involved, but he was a big name. Okay. He believed that solidarity was necessary for the organization of the entirety of the working class. Right. So I what remember I, reading something he wrote, but I don't remember what it was. Well, he wrote a lot of things. He did. He's done a lot of famous speeches. Mm, um, he did speeches was, against World War I. Mm, he yeah. ran for president on, on the Socialist Party. He was pretty cool. 
Yeah, maybe it was a speech transcript or something. Because he believed that like solidarity was necessary. I the whole paper that I wrote was about how the IWW, because of its organization, because of its beliefs, was essentially not racist, not xenophobic. I mean, there were tiny, tiny parts, but they made a large effort to organize all racial groups, ethnic groups, and stuff. Mm. And they believed that direct action was the preferred way of achieving goals. So striking, organizing, and causing unrest were better than just like going and voting or running in the Labour Party. They didn't. Interestingly, was they, there a Labour Party in the United States? There was a socialist. There was the Socialist Party. Oh, okay. Um, but they didn't. They didn't want to found a Labour Party or um, do something like that. But nothing called the, the Labour, Labour Party. Party. No, like there is. Like there is in, in the UK. In the UK, a formerly cohesive nation, <laughs> the, the United Kingdom. Yeah, formerly European Union nation. Well, too soon. <laughs> too soon. We're still grieving. <laughs> And they argued against making contracts with employers. They just, they were like, strike a lot, organize a lot, cause unrest so that we can make progress. Mm -hmm. And the federal government did not like that. The federal government beat them. They shoot, they they shoot them. They shoot shoot now. They shoot now. They fly now. (laughs) Beatings were common. Shootings were common. Hmm. All that stuff. So you said this was the federal government? This was the federal government. Whose administration? Multiple, because um, oh, okay. they a wide range. They were founded in the late nineteenth century, but they they had a big growth in the early twentieth century. Debs was note uh, noteworthy for opposing World War One. They like in Lawrence, Massachusetts, they went to set up local branches and committees when people were striking. They they were very community oriented. Again, sort of this Marxist dream, really, of like strike, organize, and try to tear down the capitalist system. So that's really it for this period of history that we're going to be talking about. Okay. This is really the background episode, really the emergence and growth episode, where labor unions are sort of, they have some interesting history in early America, and then they grow, they receive backlash, and then they really grow with the Knights of Labor, the AFL, and then my boys, the IWW. It'll be interesting to see how this momentum carries out in the future. All right. I am excited. And with that, I think we should close out this episode. So thank you for listening. Hopefully this wasn't too rambly and incoherent. And hopefully you learned a little something as the boy Owen over there did. I did. About the history of unions in America. I learned quite a bit. From their origins to their rise. And we'll be talking more about the bell curve, if you will, of union power. The Um, Laffer curve? No, the the bell curve. It's it's the bell curve. (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, Similarly racist. Um, (laughs) Of unions in the next episode. All right. I can't wait. Until the next one. Until then.